challenge now, I think, is how do we implement um, different instructional tools in your classes and different assignments? And how do you engage the students? Because if the students aren't interested and don't see the value in what you're trying to teach them, they're going to tune out. Um, they're not going to remember. But if they get excited in your class, if they can see why is this relevant to me, um, then I think you, you have them hooked. And then you're able to um, engage with them more um, and get them excited about what they're doing. And I think we still, though, fall back often into that the power bite, that PowerPoint where I'm just going to passively share information with you. Um, but we know that a lot of students don't learn that way. And even if they're retaining the material, are they getting excited about the material? And if they're not excited about it and that interest isn't peaked, they're going to move on. So, And they're not going to want to either stay in your major or we'll talk about the poultry industry, like trying to get more students interested in it. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. Working with nature and not against it. Chickens fed AX3 Digest consume significantly less feed and water to produce one pound of meat. Successful flock performance is determined during the first 10 days post-placement. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible novel protein that most improved in barn performance, bird health, and a drier litter. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Poultry Podcast. My name is Jason Emmert, and today we're visiting with Dr. Elizabeth Karcher, who is a professor of animal sciences at Purdue University. She has a background in immunobiology and nutritional science and holds a bachelor's degree from Penn State, a master's degree from Purdue, and a Ph.D. from Iowa State. Dr. Karcher teaches a number of courses and is focused on the scholarship of teaching and learning. It's no surprise to me that she has received numerous teaching and impact awards at the university and national levels. And being someone who is primarily focused on teaching, I'm very excited about this conversation. So, Dr. Karcher, welcome to the Poultry Podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me today. Yeah, it's great to have you with us. And we like to start off just finding out a little bit about our guests' academic journeys. Kind of tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are today. 
Sure. So as I already mentioned, I started at Penn State. Um, I went there thinking I was going to be a small animal veterinarian. Obviously, that didn't happen. That wasn't the path that I ended up going. Um, But I got really interested while I was there in dairy nutrition and learning more about what it meant to do graduate research and be a part of that community. So when I finished um, at Penn State, I decided to go to Purdue for my master's. Um, And I worked in dairy nutrition um, with Sean Donkin while I was here. And so my interest kept going and um, went to Iowa State, like you mentioned, and I was really fortunate there to work with the USDA as part of my um, PhD program looking at Yoni's disease in dairy cattle. Um, And then I went on to do a postdoc at Michigan State, became a faculty member at Michigan State, and we were there, I was there about eight years. And while I was there, I noticed that my interest really started to shift a little bit more from um, doing research in dairy um, and nutrition and health and really looking more at how are my students learning? I was always passionate about teaching. um, And I started realizing that there's research questions you can ask about that. So um, it was great at Michigan State to start that journey. And then my position at Purdue opened up about eight years ago, and um, it provided me the opportunity to do scholarship and teaching and learning as my primary research. So I took that opportunity and moved here, and it's been great so far. So... That's wonderful. And uh, did Purdue sort of create uh, this position, carve that out with a really intentional focus on teaching and learning? Because I I think that's just so fascinating that, that you have that kind of position. Yeah, so the position itself was originally looking for somebody who could help run the undergraduate program, had an idea about curriculum, was able to do research. And so when I first started, we talked a lot as to whether or not I would continue some of the dairy research Mm -hmm. um, or really go down that road of looking at the teaching and learning. And as I did more in that area and was able to show that there's a lot of grant external grants that you can receive um, and was successful in that area, it really... um, just became what people expected that I would be able to do. And it became a niche in our department that um, has been really exciting. So I'm not sure if that was the initial plan um, because right. I'm not sure if everybody's aware of that. You, you can get promoted in the, you know, in academics and that in scholarship of teaching and learning. Um, but it's been an incredible journey here as we've all kind of been learning that together. So. Yeah, I think it's a great model uh, for really any any university, any animal sciences program, or lots of programs within colleges of agriculture to to see how um, having somebody in that kind of position is both a resource for faculty, resource for students, and somebody moving the needle within a discipline on teaching and learning. It's just really important. And unfortunately, you don't have to stay up late uh, every night reading all the uh, the journal articles on teaching and learning in poultry. It's just a pretty small pot right now. Yep. Yeah, that's an area we've been trying to think a little bit more about. How do we add to that literature using um, poultry as the context and all the mm-hmm. challenges we maybe we can talk about today with um, our students and getting them interested in the industry and some of those aspects. Yep. Absolutely. Now, one thing I want to go back to, because I, before I forget, I think I think it's interesting. There's probably quite a few people listening, and I know 
for myself and a lot of our faculty. Um, you mentioned having started on that pre-vet path mm-hmm. and you know you, you end up on a different path. Is that something you also see in quite a few students? Um, because I know it causes our students a lot of angst, but we, we try to help them understand there's so many different things you can do. Yeah, we actually, so I teach our introduction to animal agriculture course in the fall and there's 180 students in that course. And um, when I ask them the first day, they're mostly primarily first year students students, um, I would say 90% of them raise their hand that they want to be small animal veterinarians. And we've thought a lot about about why. Um, and some of that, I think, is students just aren't aware um, growing up of all the opportunities of things to do with animals besides just veterinary medicine. And we've looked yeah. at a little bit... Um, you know, we found, or I haven't found, but people in the literature and people have been doing this, these studies have looked at career identity of students. And mm-hmm. it's found as early as elementary school for many of our students. So if you grow up your whole life saying, I'm going to be a vet, and then you go to school um, in higher education and you realize maybe you don't want to go, um, you didn't know these other opportunities were there, it's really hard for a lot of students to sort of come to terms with that because that's what they were always going to do. And so, mm-hmm. um, I always remember from my unique background, or my background's not so unique, right? It's like for many of the other students, um, I, I always try to remember that when I'm working with the first year students, that it's right. it's a journey for them and a um, discovery of all these mm-hmm. different things you can do in animal science that they just don't know about. So, And some will be veterinarians, right? We need veterinarians sure. um, and some yeah. on that path the whole time. But uh, the majority of them will find a different path um, throughout their four mm-hmm. years with us. So. Yeah, absolutely. And they, I, I encounter students all the time who almost have a mindset if they decide not to go to vet school that they're quitting something. And I, I tell them, you're, you're not in vet school. You're not quitting vet school. It's okay. You're just finding a different path. But you're right. They've been connected to that, that dream, that goal for so long. And it's, it's hard to make a change. Yeah, they get worried, too, that maybe family members will be upset yes. if they change um, because that's just the expectation of what they might do. Mm-hmm. Um, And so we talk a lot in our department um, about the three plan A's. So, yes, veterinary medicine Mm -hmm. might be your plan A, but what's your next plan A? Um, What other internships can you do um, in addition to getting, you know, working with a veterinarian? Um, And even if you end up going to vet school, like what are internships you can do with companies and in the industries to make your application stand out? Um, Everyone's going to have the veterinary hours that they need to apply. um, What will make you different from all the other students? Because vet school just keeps getting more and more competitive. Um, And so it's, it's a if you really want to do it, there's things you can do to be a little bit strategic and, and give you the most background so you're successful in your vet program when you move mm-hmm. on. So. Yeah. Sometimes we, we advise students uh, if they're having that conversation with family and they think that might be a difficult conversation to maybe start with, hey, to say, today I decided to save over $100,000. And then, uh-huh. you know, be open with that. Yeah, I mean, the amount that we see right now of students of student debt um, outside of undergraduate, but outside of vet- veterinary medicine, as well as some of the other issues that are um, that su- people are having to work through in the in the industry right now or in that profession, um, you really have to want it, um, and you really have to be passionate and and really committed to doing that. Um, and so, some students will discover that, and others. Um, um, some will go to that school and after the first semester realize that's not, this isn't what I wanted or that realization. And then they'll, you know, they'll find the right way or where they're, where they're going to end up. Um, but it is, it's really hard. I, I advise students here at Purdue, um, academic advisor for several, and we have a lot of those tough conversations where they're, they're just, 
they're torn. They're yeah. trying to figure out what's best for them. And, and students are young. Most of them are 18 to 22 year olds. So they're still mm-hmm. discovering, um, you know, what really they get passionate about. Right. Cause if they're not passionate about something, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt's a lot to go into if you're not really passionate and committed and excited about it. So it is, it is. That's right. Now, another, another thread I wanted to pick up on, um, cause I think it's a pretty common thread with lots of people we talk to on the podcast and with a, uh, a lot of us in general is, uh, you've had some career changes, right? And mm-hmm. some, changing directions. Can you talk about that process a little bit? Or uh, Because sometimes I'm, I'm talking to colleagues or students and they, they're curious, you know, how do you know when it's time or what are some of the clues that kind of indicate maybe a, a change is a good way to go? I, I'm really leading you into this very poorly, but if, <laughs> if you have anything to say about that, yeah. I understand. So, yeah, I mean, it was a tough decision to leave uh, Michigan State and move mm-hmm. on to Purdue University. Like, um, I had wonderful colleagues at Michigan State who I still collaborate with here now, and it's great to have that resource. We're neighbors. They're only four hours north of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned so much in my first time, like my first job at Michigan State. I mean, I, I grew as a scientist. I grew professionally in a lot of different ways. And the people I got to interact with, there were just so many opportunities there. Um, and so when the, it was, a, it was a hard decision to come to Purdue. Um, but I was so excited about the aspect of a position where I could a hundred percent focus on the social side, that research component, yeah. um, yeah. and be able to the challenge of running and, you know, helping to run an undergraduate program. And we've gone through a curriculum review since I've been here and we're implementing yeah. that now and coming up with how do you assess it? Those were things that really excited and challenged me. So I was sad to leave, um, but really excited about the potential opportunity that Purdue had for me. Um, so, but it's great though, those relationships, you know, they stay and I, it's great when I get to collaborate with my, my old colleagues or still my colleagues, but, um, yeah those relationships were there, but it was a tough. And I think when you have a, a career change, um, anytime, I think there's a lot of, cause it's the unknown, right? So some people are really, are really good with change and they embrace it. And other people like myself, you're, you know, are a little bit more hesitant with change and some, depending yeah. on the circumstance, um, we have a family as well. So picking up a family and moving them, um, there's lots of things that go into the, is it the right time to move? And and for me and my family, it was it was the right time. So it yeah. and it was a great decision. I'm really happy here at Purdue. Yeah. Well, that's great. I know one thing I struggled with in the past, and that was you know when when my own career changes have come up is as you look back and you think about the long hours and the hard work and the training, and I I had to get past the thought process that I'm turning my back on you know, what I've learned before, what I've done before. But then once I've gone into these new positions, you realize how much you still draw on problem solving skills and critical thinking, all the things that, you know, that you've learned before. So, yeah, the quantitative, I mean, I was a trained, a trained scientist and more of the quantitative mm-hmm. aspect and um, moving here allowed me to really explore the social science side of, of research and, um, all the things that go in with working with humans versus, um, you know, your, your cows, when you go out, you can, I can tell you what they ate that day, how much they ate, what they did every hour of the day. Um, and so social science, that's been, um, not a negative struggle, but like, that's what I've been learning is really what are the different research methods, um, when you're talking about qualitative studies or how do you analyze Mm -hmm. 
the data differently in a quantitative aspect when you're developing surveys and how do you develop surveys that are, um, and so for me, um, and my, my graduate students working with me, I mean, that's been part of my learning over the last several years here is retaking my training of the, right, the basic scientific method that we all, we all learn as scientists and how do I apply what I've already learned, but then there's this whole other science out there that I, I dabbled in at Michigan State, but I mean, I really made it here what I wanted to go through my promotion and tenure process on and, um, and so, but that's where you, I think you learn as you're in your, as you go professionally, like you find the colleagues that you can work with, that they're the experts in that area. They can help guide you as you're going and you learn along the way. Um, but the first time I did some, some real true um, institutional review board, human research, it was a little bit of a struggle because I was used to, you know, your animals, you kind of know what yeah. they're doing and when they're doing it. And um, it's different, right. very different. So. It is. It is. You mentioned the uh, curriculum review uh, a couple minutes ago, and and you've published on this this process, mm-hmm. um, and I think just a phenomenal publication, a tremendous guide for any department that's wanting to. Well, wanting to. That's probably not the right way to phrase it. Needing to undertake this uh, undertake this process. So, do you want to talk about that publication just a bit, and uh, yeah. just so folks know that it that it's out there and what it contains? Yeah. So the publication we were looking at, um, it it goes through our process for a three-year curriculum review that we had within our department and how we structured that. So at the beginning of the curriculum review, it was really important to me that everybody had a voice in it. It didn't matter if you were appointment or research um, or extension that we all um, everybody had an opportunity to have their voice heard in the process so we worked um, to just divide up the faculty to give everybody and we also included our staff members if you were an instructor or you're part of the department you were included on these teams Um, we also worked with resources on campus like our center for instructional excellence because they have the true experts who um, who do this on a daily basis but we we've went and got outside, you know, we evaluated our current curriculum. We really developed a whole new set of learning outcomes. So what should, we have 700 undergrads. So when they graduate, what should they all be able to do, regardless of Mm -hmm. their concentration or where they decided to focus? If they're an animal sciences major, what should they know? And we started there and we wrote those. We hadn't had those up to that point. So we really talked about those. We evaluated our current classes and which classes met those outcomes, which ones mm-hmm. weren't. And when we did that curriculum mapping, we were able to identify, you know, you'd hear some of the senior faculty complaining that taught the senior level courses. Well, students just aren't doing this. Like we're not, they're not seeing it. And those of us who teach the intro courses are like, well, we don't know why, because but doing that mapping, it became really clear that, well, we're expecting them to jump on their ability to do these outcomes, but we're not guiding them through their classes to do that. So we were able uh, to use that as evidence to um, redesign our curriculum. Um, we we um, sent surveys to um, alumni, to industry. So we, we asked for external feedback as well. Um, uh, and then ultimately, um, it was a very deliberate three-year process to do it. But mm-hmm. I'm really excited that we implemented it in... Um, um, let's see here, it would have been in 21 um, mm-hmm. was the first group that went through. So they're now um, start, starting their junior year. Um, and so as part of that, we're now focusing on the assessment because now that we built it, how do we know it's working? Um, right. And evidence-based, like that's everything that we're trying to do is how do we measure whether or not it's working? Um, and we need to make changes because the curriculum's never, I don't want, we don't want it to just sit the next 10 years and never change. So right. 
what do we need to do to um, to just make sure that we make changes along the way, recognize that maybe there were things we could have done better, and then how do we change those? But we really focus a lot on it with also giving students um, more autonomy to pick which direction they wanted to go. Like when there's some courses that everybody just has to have, that's just mm-hmm. part of being an animal science major. Um, sure. But if they're interested in something, can they, we give them that freedom to pick a little mm-hmm. bit more in that area. And then we also focus on exposing them earlier um, to the different disciplines within animal science, because some of our students would get their junior, senior year and take a meat science course for the same time and fall in love with it but they just missed out on the opportunity to do more of it in their program. Yeah. So yeah. a lot more of earlier on taking the time to make sure that they're more aware of every, like their different options um, in the intro level. Um, so yeah. that way they give that more autonomy when they, they move up in their program. So it's still early. So I can't tell you, I, I'm also far what we've collected. It looks like everything's going on track um, and we're excited about it, but uh but yeah, it was three year, three years. But I think there's, um, you know, there's ways that anybody who's looking to evaluate their curriculum, there's some things you could do to condense it. Um, mm-hmm. We felt for us that worked. That was the best way to to make sure we did a process that kind of went the way that we were and the outcomes that we were hoping for. Yep. Absolutely. And I think it is important. I mean, whether it's whatever the time frame to take the time that's needed, you just yeah. you, you rush through it. You try to take shortcuts and it's just not going to give you the outcomes that that you could have had if you take yeah. your time. And yeah. it's very easy to say, like, well, I had to do it this way. So I had to take yes. all these classes. So why doesn't mm-hmm. everybody have to take those? And we we talked a lot about that, like just because an animal science program always had it this way is that the way we still have to do it? Um, we did a lot of um, evaluations of like our peer animal science programs to also see like what courses are they offering? Um, right. You know, and so, so we had a lot of conversation about do think, does this particular class need to be included as a requirement? Does this have to be like, does everybody have to graduate with this knowledge in, in all of these areas? Um, and we're all passionate about our respected disciplines. Um, and so it was some pretty healthy debating back and forth. Um, but we finally, you know, we agreed and everybody voted and, um, we're moving forward with it. So, Oh, that's great. Yeah. I, I I think part of what I reflect on from time to time is thinking back how there were things that if I didn't know them coming out of my undergraduate program, it was going to take some real effort and time to find that information. But now there's so much information at our fingertips, you can almost take a different approach and, uh, you know, really thinking more about helping students learn how to find information, understand what they're finding, think critically. And, yeah, uh, yeah the memorization stuff, probably not quite as, as important as what it used to be. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's move into, um, yeah, some of the challenges and I you know we don't have to get too fixated just on the challenge side but I think it's important to recognize what some of the challenges with teaching um, working with students as we see students change because I think certainly whatever time frame we want to put on it there there have been changes and in students and their approach to learning what they know about learning so what would you say are, are some of the greatest challenges that you face or you feel like people in higher education in general are facing I mean, I think one of the areas, well, we we did see, I think, a change a little bit in the students post-COVID. So we've had lots of conversations about um, how that that period of time impacted um, 
students the first few years after. And um, we noticed for a while that students were quieter in class. They, mm-hmm. um, there was just a change. Those of us, especially that teach first year classes where we all across the university too, not just animal science, but um, when we all came back to campus, this is the first year to be honest that we're all like, wow, the freshmen are so engaging and um, it just, they're, they're just, there's more of an excitement. And so we're pretty, ex- I mean, we're happy to see that. Um, but I think for instructors, we talk a lot about um, like the learner centered or getting away from that traditional PowerPoint, which yeah. is really hard for some because that's how, I mean, that's how I went to school. I went to school sitting there quietly, list, watching PowerPoints, listening to my instructors. In some of my upper level classes, there was maybe a little bit more discussion if, you know, if it was smaller. But in my larger classes, um, I certainly, there wasn't, there wasn't as much of that. And, and a lot of us, that's how we, that's how we learned. Right. And I think what we're finding is um, from the people that are doing the educational research and, you know, the college of ed, that's not the best way necessarily for everybody to learn. So Mm -hmm. a challenge now I think is how do we implement um, different instructional tools in your classes and different assignments and how do you engage the students? Because if the students aren't interested and don't see the value in what you're trying to teach them, they're going to tune out. Um, they're not going to remember. But if they get excited in your class, if they can see why is this relevant to me, um, then I think you, you have them hooked. And then you're able to um, engage with them more um, and get them excited about what they're doing. And I think we still, though, fall back often into that the PowerPoint, that PowerPoint where I'm just going to passively share information with you. Um, but we know that a lot of students don't learn that way. And even if they're retaining the material, are they getting excited about the material? And if they're not excited about it and that interest isn't peaked, they're going to move on. So, And they're not going to want to either stay in your major or we'll talk about the poultry industry, like trying to get more students interested in it. Um, if they don't have positive experiences and interactions in classes with it, they're most likely not going to pursue it. So that's a, that's a challenge right now um, I think that we're seeing is how do we – how do we do this and how do we get students exposed to all the other aspects in the industry and get them excited and willing at least to engage with it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's tough. And move, moving away from PowerPoint is it's hard. Yeah. Cause you get, you get attached and you have, you know, I've already got all these resources and yeah, coming up with new things can be, can be difficult, but well, when you stumble onto a, an active learning strategy that really works, it's so exciting in the classroom and yeah. it, it makes it worth it. Yeah. Yeah, And so many more um, campuses are starting active learning classrooms that you can use. Um, I know of several even animal science programs that have recently like built new um, new buildings and they purposely put active learning classrooms in there. We have an active learning classroom here in our building, which is just all animal sciences. Um, Our university even has a whole building that's just active learning classrooms. Um, And actually my class um, with 180, I teach in the largest one in the um, university. We're fortunate enough to get in there for class. Um, And it's a game changer. You get away from that stadium style where you can't walk down the you know, the aisles and you can't, students can't really interact with each other. It changes up. I mean, the minute they step in that classroom environment, um, it really changed, like, that's part of it, like how it's structured and the actual physical aspect of the classroom, like that impacts oh, yeah. 
happening. Um, I think the other challenge that we're looking at too is increasing um, ways as instructors to increase inclusivity in our classrooms, mm-hmm. making sure that that sense of belonging is there for all students and what are things as an instructor that I can do um, to facilitate that. And um, we've had had more discussions about that, like in our department. Um, but it, to me, that's really important because I want students, regard, like, you know, they, I don't care what, they come with different backgrounds, both in their backgrounds with animal agriculture, but all these other different backgrounds, everybody has a place in that classroom. So how do you, as an instructor, let them know that from the very beginning, like this is an inclusive environment. So that's pretty important to me. And we've had faculty, a lot of conversation about that. Yep. Yeah, definitely at the, at the forefront of a lot of discussions, lots of places that, yeah. you know, how, how to do that. Yep. Yeah. I did want to ask, and, um, before we move into maybe more uh, poultry specific um, sure. topics, but I did want to ask: uh, what, Are you? How are you approaching uh, the artificial intelligence yeah. um, tools that students have? That's been one of my greatest challenges teaching a writing class: figuring out what to do with this. Yeah, so I've taken the approach that it's here. And in some ways, it's going to be a resource that's going to be really positive for students to use. Um, And in other ways, it may not be appropriate to use. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've taken that approach that I openly talk. It gets in my syllabus. I talk to the students Mm -hmm. about um, what's an appropriate use of it. Um, And when you do use it, how do you cite that you're using it? Um, And then what's not going to be for my class, my expectations and appropriate use of it. So I let them utilize it in certain contexts within like the Mm -hmm. constraints that we have for the class. Um, But I did that because it's it's here to stay. Um, And I think we're only going to be it's another tool in some aspects. So how do we teach our students to utilize that tool versus saying, no, like you're not allowed to use it. We're not doing anything because in some contexts it is, there is a place for it. Um, but I think we need to define that really well for the students because they're learning too what's appropriate. And that being said, we certainly have students that sometimes don't follow those guidelines and use it for other things. Um, but I feel like working with them and providing those guidelines, um, it helps them know, you know, what's appropriate for that course and what's not. Because it's here and we need to, I think, embrace it and figure out how we're going to work with it. Yeah. I saw a shift in just a few short months and, and I allow it for, for use in my writing class for, for some specific purposes. Um, and the shift went from students saying, Hey, we want to be able to use this. And, and we work toward that to some students saying, I don't want to use this. We're trying to use it in discussions and doing activities with it. And they're like, I don't want to use it. <laughs> and so That's I'm trying interesting. yeah, it's really, it's been a, a 180 for, for quite a few of the students and I, I don't necessarily want to force them to use it, but I'm in the same yeah. camp. It's it's a technology I suspect they're going to have to use in their future careers. Yep. And so, yeah, trying to help. I them wonder understand. if they're if they're more likely to because you're so open about like being able to use it. You know that that okay, then maybe trying it out more, knowing that it's a it's an okay thing to do in the class, and then realizing it's not for them. Versus if you were to say never use it, like you're not allowed. Um, so I think. Yeah, like giving them that space to try it. But it's interesting that, you know, then they reach that conclusion, right? Like, I don't want to use it. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I found really early on saying you're not allowed to use it. it it's like put, putting up the button that says don't push this button or, you know, don't go in this room. Uh, those absolutely. things just try to it. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. They're going to use yeah. it. It's out there. But that's right. That's yeah. right. All right. Well, when it when it comes to um, the poultry industry specifically, and I know you've done uh, quite a bit of work on how can we increase interest. I think you've looked at uh, at uh, pre college um, programs, things things that we can do before students even get to college. So, share some of your thoughts on on that. How do we how do we help students develop an interest in in careers in poultry or in the poultry industry? Yeah. So um, I've come to the conclusion from teaching um, an intro class for several years now that. Students come, we, and we've collected some data on this across different institutions. Um, students come with this perception of poultry, many of them do, um, and they're already closed off to considering careers and opportunities before they come to us. Um, and so from those observations and then um, working with others from across the U.S. to collect data from their intro courses and mm-hmm. seeing that, it really made us start wondering, okay, there's things we definitely can do to expose them in the first year and in their program, which we are doing that. But what about that K through 12? What is it about um, the younger still in school, you know, before they come to higher ed? what can we do there? And so when we were really looking, there's some really great poultry resources out there Mm -hmm. for, um, for teachers to use or for H leaders to use, but they're still limited and there's not, there's not enough. Um, And so we looked at that and we said, okay, what can we do to potentially start programs for fourth and fifth graders, right? Because if career identity starts in elementary school, can we at least expose them earlier on? Because we know if somebody, like if you do an activity that you're not familiar with and it gets you excited, and then maybe like the next week you do something in that same area topic again and you're and it gets excited that over time that leads to you actually having like a sustained interest in that topic so the idea with this k through the k through 12 programs that we have is how can we provide teachers resources that'll expose a student multiple times to poultry Mm -hmm. Um, but be able to then measure, and part of our research is measuring, do those modules and the, the programs, does that impact the students' overall interest in poultry science or their, their awareness and knowledge? Because mm-hmm. it varies a lot based on um, their backgrounds and the people they interact with at home um, and what they see and they hear on TV or online. Um, so we also addressed it more looking at STEM because we wanted it to be something that we would be able to get like a biology teacher to pick up, um, not just somebody who's a, um, interested in agriculture, but be able to use it as a way that somebody who's in um, more interested in kind of increased interest in STEM, they could also do. So the programs we created are the poultry. We have an egg, two egg programs, a poult program, um, and then we also have an animal health program. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, which is poultry as the context for that. But that's really what our, our goal was, was to try to um, develop these different programs and develop a website that we could share these resources that we um, are using the evidence with the d- collection of the data to see, did it do what we said it was going to do? Um, give teachers more resources because they don't always have enough to do it. Um, and so how do we just start getting them exposed earlier on to their mm-hmm. programs. Um, and we aligned all of our programs with like state standards and some national ag literacy standards because teachers um, in K through 12, I mean, you need to make sure you're aligning it with standards. So um, so we provide some of that as well to teachers so that they can see where might it fit in our curriculum. Um, 
Um, and I'm really excited because our website is going to be live any day now that has all the programs available um, for everybody um, to, to just access and use if they would like. So Wonderful, wonderful. Um, th- that website will be, uh, can people find that through going to Purdue, going to, will that be part of your website on? So it's not going to be a Purdue website, but we're going to get it linked um, to my website. So I think it actually is going live today. So I, I wish it was live this morning. Um, this is perfect time for when it's um, going to be up and running. Um, but it will, will, I can provide that, that link with you. And um, it should be linked to my homepage soon um, at Purdue. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, I think that sounds phenomenal. And I mean, teachers just are not going to have the time and for most of them, the background to develop these things on their own. They're, they're just, yeah, that would be a, that would be a tough ask, I think, for, for most teachers. So having those things available, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, and that's our goal is to make it as easy as possible for teachers mm-hmm. to be able to implement it and give them the resources so that they can um, feel confident um, and self, yeah. you know, self-efficacy and being able to um, be able to feel like I can implement this in my classroom. And um, and so we're we're hoping our plan is to also start working on some more like we're going to continue to build on these programs. Um, I'm hoping maybe to do a duck program next because Indiana is number oh, one. Right. So um, it's missing on my website. So um, that's, I think, our next focus is going to be trying to um, do something with ducks. So great. And I think young people would would enjoy that. That's something different. I mean, as as little exposure as they have to chickens and turkeys, I'm sure most have virtually none with ducks. Yeah. Yeah, and we found like... The students absolutely love like simulation games. So we work with a center here on campus. So all of the um, our programs have some type of at least one like simulation game. Like for the um, turkey program for elementary school students, they actually like if you remember the old like the old school bus cartoons where they got oh, yeah. in school bus and they. So yeah. you basically get to be a you get to pick what feed particle you want to be and you get to go through on a backpack mission through the digestive system of a turkey. Um, and learn along the way. And it's all geared right to that age group too, to try to get them excited. We have a high school one um, where they actually have to make decisions about how many birds might you put in the space, how many waters, what enrichment, and then what might that do to your, um, your egg production. So students can um, kind of compete against each other. Like, Oh, look, I got this when you only got this. And why was that different? They get into the simulation games. Those are definitely, um, definitely a positive to include those yeah oh that's fun and we know uh you know a little bit about that in the college classroom the same things can apply there's lots of tools you can you can use get a little bit of that competition going and oh yeah yeah. some of my high school module simulation games i use in my first year freshman class at purdue because they it fits really well and it doesn't take up a lot of time and it gets them engaging and talking and yeah competing against each other so Oh, very good. Last thing I, I wanted to ask before we kind of move into, because our time has gone so fast, but um, before we move into the, the final three questions, but um, I, I wanted to get your opinion on how the the level of study skills that students are, are coming in with, because we're finding here students really just have not been taught how to study. They just lack some of the skills needed. They may be spending time, so we we try to be careful not telling them, you just need to work harder. Um, 
it may be just working differently or using strategies that work better. But are you finding that area to be a challenge as well, study skills? Yeah, especially the first year students coming in, mm-hmm. there's lots of stress this yeah. first semester. In fact, it's, it's funny you brought that up because um, I had class this morning. It's our last class before their final. And we spent about 20 minutes going over some more ideas on how you can study um, they're really concerned about the cumulative portion of the exam. How do you study for that? We had some TAs make videos for the TAs for the course. Our undergrad TAs, they made videos that we shared on, on their suggestions. Um, but we have seen that quite a bit. There's a lot of um, stress and anxiety around how do you study or we found that students ways that worked in high school just don't work here so we talk a lot about engaging with their peers to practice studying like if you can explain something to somebody and teach them it that's probably the best way to know what you know or don't know a lot of them are still reading text or highlighting right the sort of that and we know that that for a lot of students does not help with retention of material Um, and so throughout the semester with the first years we're always giving them like, have you thought about trying this or try doing this when you're studying? Or what are some things that have been really helpful for previous students that were in your shoes? Um, and so I think that helps a little bit. I mean, we've definitely seen improvement with the grades as mm-hmm. like the exam grades as the semester has gone. Um, I focus a lot more on low stakes assignments in versus high stakes like exam. And I made that transition during COVID um, mm-hmm. when a lot of there was a lot of discussion among instructors um, nationally is do we need to be doing as much of these high stakes assignments and high stakes, the exams and, um, these really large point assignments that if a student for whatever reason doesn't do well on and do they really let them demonstrate what they know? And so I cut back on, I still give the same number of exams, but they're not worth, um, point wise, percentage wise in the class nearly as much. It's a lot more group activities that we do in class, case studies, like smaller mm-hmm. quizzes, things that kind of force them to stay engaged with the material. Um, and I kept that since COVID, um, since that 2020 fall that we taught, I taught the class yeah. that way. And I think that's mm-hmm. been a really, I was a little resistant to do that. I don't know why looking back. Um, but so many people tried it and had positive responses and there were papers published on it. And I was like, I'm going to give it a go. And I'm really happy I did because I think it, it gives them another opportunity to let us show them what they know and not this high stakes sit in an exam. Cause some students just don't, they know it. They just don't excel in that capacity. So yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I, I'm not sure how many exams I would want to take at this point. <laughs> no, every time I do one, I'm actually really happy I don't have to take them anymore. <laughs> yes, yeah, for sure, for sure. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Your partner for improving animal performance. Berg and Schmidt. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonics focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers.
Well, it's been a great conversation, uh, but I want to be respectful of your time. And so let's move into the kind of the last three questions that we like to ask a lot of our guests. And the first is, uh, do you have a favorite poultry related book or resource or I mean, it can be yeah anything poultry related? So I was trying to think of this, um, what I might have. I spend a lot of time looking online for like um, youth resources for poultry and different Mm -hmm. studies and things that I can use in my class. I don't, to be honest, I haven't quite found a favorite one. I mean, they're they're out there, um, but none that I... Um, would maybe say is my is my favorite but for poultry I mean that's um, I try to stay up to date on what's kind of what maybe papers have been published in the area education related like with using poultry or popular press journal. but I don't have yeah. a really good answer for you today on that because I mean that's more um, I, I just I enjoy kind of seeing what other people put out there and sometimes that's a good way to connect with them too, like reach out to the author mm-hmm. and learn what they were doing. Um, But I don't have a particular like piece that I make sure like, you know, that I I sit down and besides just reading like poultry, uh, poultry science journals and that sort of. Yeah. Well, I think the the nature of your position and your career is such that, um, there's just not likely to be that one thing you're going to have to draw from a lot of a lot of places yeah. to do the things that you're trying to do for sure. Yeah. I read like higher education journals like the Chronicles mm-hmm. and some of those. I, I like to right. keep up on those because those are really good to just see where get new ideas and see what people are doing. And uh, I enjoy doing that. That I do more frequently for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so that's kind of a, a non poultry related resource. You know, that that's our next question. Just, yeah, the kind of the go-tos if you have a favorite non poultry resource. Yeah, professional non poultry is probably mm-hmm. those broader um, higher education journals that mm-hmm. are just sort of um, that are written both like, I mean, peer review journal articles, but also just the, you know, the more easy to read like the magazine, sit down, popular press and see what's going on. Um, I think that's good to do. Um, personally, I, when I'm just trying to decompress from work and not um, read anything related to work, I really like reading like Hunter's World. Um, I used to read all the time when I was younger, um, like just picking up books. My daughter reads all the time. And somewhere along the line professionally, like throughout my life, I have stopped doing that um, from a personal standpoint. But I can still pick up a runner's world and just I enjoy reading. I mean, it's just a time to, uh-huh. to just read something that's not work related. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. That can be important sometimes for sure. Yes, yeah. Yes. yeah. Do you ever find I, I know when I, I try to stay fairly tuned in to you know, the higher education journals and just what's going on there. But sometimes I find myself from week to week almost wanting to completely change everything I'm doing. So I really have to be careful about how often I'm <laughs> I'm looking at innovative people out there that are just doing some really cool things. And you hear and I, that's the when you go to um, I also like I go to poultry science every summer, but I'm also I have a professional um, NACTA North American College of Agriculture, and I love going there because there are some awesome things that people are doing that you you can talk to them about or you can read about, um, and so you have to mm-hmm. yeah you do have to be careful what 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 do you want to try in your class because there's so many cool things that you could do and try and um, there's some really cool things people do out there. 
So right, that's right, that's yeah. right. Well, our, our last question is um, just your advice, if uh, because I know, I mean, not not if you work with students, when you work with students, because you work with students a lot. Um, what advice do you have for someone or for a student in particular who may be interested in getting into an, an animal related career or even a poultry related career specifically? Yeah. So with poultry, um, more specifically, I teach an introduction to um, or like we call it cracking the poultry industry course, and um, it's one credit course that's just meant to expose students. So I try to tell all my students, even if they have no interest in poultry, I'm like, or just want to go to vet school, to be honest. I'm like, what? You know, it's not going to hurt anything to explore. Don't be afraid to try new things. Like if you think you might, you might not know, um, you know, you have this path set out for you, but you don't know where you're going to end up. So I think a lot of students shy away because they're nervous to try something new or don't want to do it. And I'm like, just try it, you know, go work in a research lab. And if you don't like it, that's okay. Like go do an internship. And if you hate it or really didn't like it, that's okay. Cause now you know, that's not where you want to end up. Um, at least initially for your first job. Right. So I think just encouraging them to not be afraid to try things and letting them know that it's okay not to like it once you try it. Like don't keep doing something if you, I mean, don't do it for two days and then stop. But if you've done something and you've really invested in it and you're just not, it's just not for you. Um, And I think I I try to think back to when I was in school and, and, you know, it feels like it's getting longer and longer ago. Um, But just trying to remember what I was like and not maybe being resistant to wanting to try things or, and how do you, how do you get the students to do that? So I focus a lot on that. And I talk to them a lot about just try it, you know, come to the meeting, come to this. Um, And our poultry class is really exciting because most of the students that take it, um, they just want to learn a little bit more about it, um, about the industry. And it's a great chance to expose them more. And so many students, um, and we've collected some data on it, go through the class and leave um, more likely to at least consider a career in poultry than they did when they started. So, And even if the outcome is just more informed consumers, that's yeah. well worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we have to remind our students, you know, even in vet school, you're going to try new things or else there's no point in going to vet school. You have to have that mindset of being willing, willing to do things and do new things. And it's okay to fail, right? Like you may fail at something like you may not be good at something. And and I think students are so worried about failing something um, Mm -hmm. and not being, you know, the best at it or. And so I think allowing them to give them that space that it's okay. It's okay to fail something. Like I have this conversation with my high schooler all the time. Um, you know, you, you're, you can try these things and you may not be successful at them and that's okay. Like, but if you never try them, how do you know? Like, um, so. Well, very good advice. Greatly appreciate that. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. It's been a great conversation. Um, I look forward to our future interactions, discussing things in the curriculum and teaching side. It's definitely a, uh, a shared passion. I, I'm learning late in my career, but nevertheless, I'm learning more and more about it all the time. And, and just a great, great area. And we're thankful for people like you who do scholarship in the area, that it's not just, uh, you know, develop a technique and keep it to yourself, but you're willing to take the time to do the research and to share those results. And that's very, very meaningful. So thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks very much for the uh, invitation. Thank you. 
Yeah. And thanks to everyone out there listening and, and watching our conversation with Liz Karcher, professor at Purdue University. Uh, we hope everybody has a great day and, and thank you so much for your time. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.